Welcome to the Wildlife Health Talks. This is our fourth episode introducing WDA members and their amazing work from all over the world. And as always, I'm your host, Kat. My guest today is Dr. Elizabeth Fernandez. Liz is a vet and wildlife veterinarian at the National Wildlife Health Center of the US Geological Survey. She's based in Madison, Wisconsin, and works with microbirds and does her research on a disease that has been plaguing these small creatures for some time, the white nose syndrome. Welcome to the show, Liz. Thank you so much for having me, Kat. Let's start with some WDA questions, as we usually do. When did you join the WDA? I first joined as a vet student um, as part of our wildlife and exotics club um, back in 2006. What do you like about the WDA? Well, the mission of the WDA is really important to me, and it really aligns with the contributions that I hope to make in the world professionally. Um, I also really appreciate the the way that WDA has this very collegial nature about it and the way that it supports students and young professionals in the wildlife health field. Yeah, nice. I've always felt very supported. Do you remember, do you have a favorite memory linked to the WDA, like at a conference or at a workshop? Um, Yeah, I got to participate in a student workshop put on by the European WDA. Um, I think it was back in 2007 or maybe 2008, um, but it took place at a uh, resort in Thessaloniki, Greece, which itself was pretty memorable. Um, But I was really surprised and excited that um, there were so many really well-known and productive wildlife researchers there and that they would take a whole week of their time to, to teach us things. Um, and then during all of the social events that week, they really treated us like we were future colleagues. And that was really important to me and it, it really helped me believe in myself. That's awesome. That is definitely super important. Yeah, cool. Let's let's move on to your work a bit more. So Liz, Before we start talking about your actual work, you work at the National Wildlife Health Center for people, especially those not based in the US. Can you give us a little summary? What does the center actually do? Sure. So as you mentioned, the National Wildlife Health Center is part of the United States Geological Survey, um, basically part of the US federal government. the, the short version is that we, we produce science that is used to help wildlife managers manage wildlife disease and promote healthy wildlife populations. So while we are, ourselves are not a management agency, our goal is to provide science for those management managers. Um, and our primary partners are, are state and federal wildlife agencies within the United States, but we're also a collaborating center um, on wildlife health for the World Organization for Animal Health, which many would know as the OIE. Why does it actually fall under the geological survey? I find that confusing. Um, it, it actually was originally part of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, um, but sometime in the 90s, I believe, they decided to separate the management agency aspect of the fish and wildlife from the sort of science pro- data production part of, the, of our mission. And so they moved us over to the geological survey, um, who shares that same mission of providing data and science for environmental managers. Oh, interesting. So your actual job description, in a way, is attending vet at the Wildlife Center. What does your day-to-day job entail? Um, Well, as the attending vet, I collaborate with a lot of different groups who do wildlife health research within the Wildlife Health Center. 
So we do both captive animal studies and field work um, as part of our um, research program. And I have an oversight role in all of those to ensure that the NWHC, the National Wildlife Health Center researchers, are you know, upholding good standards of animal wel welfare in their research. Um, but then there are also some projects that I collaborate on more extensively, more as a technical expert. Um, a lot of those are projects with bats. And so that's why a lot of my research has involved bats. Yeah, nice. That sounds definitely very interesting since uh, it sounds like you have a lot of variety in your job. So you're not focused on this one topic, but it's a variety of projects you are assisting with. Yeah, as you said, you mostly work with microbats. What is it that you that fascinates you about them? Well, um, bats are a hugely diverse group of species. They're the uh, most numerous species of mammals after rodents. And they have just some fascinating adaptations to their lifestyles. So all bats fly and the adaptations that they have in their um, anatomy and physiology and even immune system to allow flight um, are, are just really fascinating to me. And then when we started working on um, hibernating North American bats for some of our research, I really came to understand some of the physiological uh, feats that bats can do to um, hibernate every year to go into torpor and how their physiology is, is truly unique. So that has just fascinated me how nature has evolved such uh, truly useful things for bats. And do you have a favorite bat species? I the My favorite bat species that I have worked with are um, common vampire bats. They are very intelligent and um, as a both a predator and prey of humans, it's really fascinating to see the way that they watch me and I watch them. So it's, it's unique from other bat species, which would only see me as a predator. Um, and I think the cutest bat I've ever seen is the hunter and white bats. Um, they're white, not surprisingly, and they make themselves these cute little tents out of banana leaves. But I've never had the pleasure of working with them directly. Where do you, the vampire bats actually occur? I thought they're more further south and like central and South America. Do you actually have them in, in um, the U.S.? We do not have um, significant populations of, of vampire bats in the U.S. There is some concern that they might, their populations may spread north into Texas. So they, they do occur in uh, Mexico, Central and South America. Um, and that our work with vampire bats was actually uh, focused on rabies, which has a global impact, but especially in areas where vampire bats are transmitting rabies to humans and livestock. So before we start diving into the white nose syndrome, I have a general question for you, which I feel like has been asked so much recently, especially with the, with the pandemic in mind. So it seems that bats are really breeding grounds for viruses and they carry around so many of them. Is there like an overall reason why that is? Or is that a wrong conception that they carry so many? Or what would you say to that? Um, well, there's a, there's actually a few reasons that we think that bats might be more tolerant of viral infections and then maybe could transmit them to other animals more easily. And most of them are actually linked to the evolution of flight. So flight's a really metabolically demanding process. And because of that, um, bats are more prone to errors in replication, DNA replication, and they have to be tolerant of errors in, in um, 
and potential free DNA that they find in their cells. So they have evolved the ability to be tolerant to that free DNA and as a result are also tolerant to some viral infections as well. So the bats can become infected without showing signs of disease in many cases. That is, yeah, that does sound super unique. That is incredible. And especially since most, I know some do, but most of those viruses wouldn't affect the bats themselves, right? So they carry them, but um, they're they're happily living with them. Correct. Yeah. I'm definitely not an, an expert, but there is one really interesting paper about that, that, um, that draws that the conclusion that perhaps the, the evolution of flight is why bats across the group might be so tolerant of viruses. So for those people not fully familiar with the disease, can you give us a little summary? What is the cause? What are the symptoms and so forth? Sure. Um, well, whiteness syndrome is a disease of bats, um, exclusively hibernating bats. Um, and it's caused by a fungus called Pseudogymnoascus destructans. The fungus actually lives in soil and it grows well at cool temperatures. But when bats are hibernating, it can grow in their skin um, um, because their body temperatures are low. So the name actually comes from the fuzzy white fungal growth that's sometimes visible on the faces of the bats. But the, the fungus invades the skin of the bat, um, especially the face and the wing membranes, which are made of skin as well. Um, so those wing membranes have really important functions in the respiratory function and water and electrolyte balance of the animal. And so when those functions become disrupted by the fungal growth, um, that disrupts their physiology and also causes them, the bats, to wake from torpor more frequently during their hibernation. And so torpor is the slowed down metabolic state that hibernating animals use to conserve energy. So when the bats spend less time in torpor, they burn through their body fat reserves more quickly and the bats don't have enough fat to make it through the winter. What is the difference between hibernation and torpor? So torpor refers to the specific metabolic state where the heart rate is very low, body temperature is very low, and it, it um, conserves the energetic needs of the animal. And hibernation refers to a period of torpor um, with intermittent bouts of arousal when their body temperature goes up and they have sort of normal levels of metabolism. So the hibernation period is made up of bouts of torpor with um periods of euthermia or arousal. Oh, thanks. That's actually really interesting. I always wondered about that, the differences. That's great. Um, so you're basically saying that um, sounds pretty dramatic so that the bats during torpor basically mold away in a way, which is a bit tragic. Yes, it can degrade their wings to the point that they cannot fly throughout the winter, but most frequently they actually just starve from the lack of body fat. And are all microbats affected by the disease? Um, so North American hibernating bats are the most affected by the disease. As you mentioned, the fungus grows um, in cool conditions. So when the bat's body temperatures are low, that allows the fungus to grow in their skin. So for bats that don't have long periods of hibernation, they're protected from the disease. They can become um, infected, but they typically don't show um, pathologic lesions. Um, some bats can even carry it, but unless they're um, going through period, a long period of low body temperature, such as hibernation, the fungus won't be able to grow. And has it spread or has the disease occurred anywhere else outside of the U.S. so far? Um, well, we 
think that the strain of, of pseudogymnastics destructans, which from now on I'm just going to call PD, we think that the PD strain that came to the United States um, in the early to mid-2000s um, originated in Europe. And, and PD has been found in Europe and parts of Asia. So it's um, it has been found to cause disease in some European bat species, but it doesn't seem to cause the same population level impacts in either Europe or Asia that we're seeing in North America. Um, but since the introduction of PD in 2006, it's been spreading from the Eastern US westward across the continent, across um, can uh, Canada and the US. And it's still spreading. Um, so I, it's definitely um, not contained to North America, though um, it does seem to be affecting those species the most. And we don't really know what would happen if it jumped to another region of the world where it's never been before. Um, how does it affect the conservation status of those bats that are affected? Uh, well, so far, it's killed millions of bats. Um, there are 12 North American species we know that are affected by the disease so far. But as it moves westward, it's going to be coming into contact with new species that only occur in those western North parts of North America. Um, the Three species that have been really affected are the northern long-eared bat, the tricolored bat, and the little brown bat. And there was a paper by some fellow USGS um, colleagues that estimates that 90% of the North American populations of those three species have been wiped out. So it's pretty severe population level impacts here. Um, wow. The northern long-eared bat is now listed under the endangered U.S. Endangered Species Act, and the little brown and tricolored bats are being considered for listing as well. Um, and then there were some bats that were previously had conservation concerns, such as the Indiana bat that are also being affected by whiteness. And once a colony, also the individual bats are and have been infected with the disease, is that basically, does that basically mean they're going to die or is there any observation of like immunity that can occur? Yeah. Well, when an individual bat is infected, if it can make it through the period of torpor um, and find food in the spring for, through the period of hibernation to as long as it can fly and find food, they can recover. Um, and individual bats can also be brought into rehab to recover. Once a, the fungus is introduced to a new location, depending on the species, we've seen very severe colony impacts where there's loss of 90% or more of a colony of little browns, for example, over the um, two or three years following introduction. And once it's um, made it to a specific hibernaculum, because it can grow within the soil there, it, it can continue to impact bats that um, decide to hibernate there. So um, most species come back to the same location to hibernate year after year. So even if they um, do not die upon their first infection, they can become reinfected and get the disease a, a second or third time once they return to hibernation. For quite a few years, there has been intense research being done on this disease. Is there any progress in terms of potential interventions, how to mitigate the consequences of white nose syndrome? Yeah, um, well, there. I, I should have mentioned before that there are, there is some research now showing that there may be um, some populations in the eastern U.S. that are um, starting to recover. So some research by a colleague, Dr. Tony Roki, is um, looking into um, what 
the cause of those rebounds may be, whether they the bat's microbiome is changing or whether they're um, having genetic changes that would shift the population to be less susceptible. Um, at this point, we don't know the cause yet, but there does seem to be some evidence that populations may be rebounding in the eastern U.S., um, Dr. Tony Roki, along with collaborators at the um, University of Wisconsin and some uh, state wildlife agency, are also working to develop a vaccine for white nose. Um, and I've gotten the opportunity to be really involved in this research. So um, the goal is to create a vaccine that could be put on the bats, uh, sprayed on them or applied topically, and that the bats would um, ingest the vaccine and become vaccinated against white nose syndrome. Um, and because bats are very social, they usually uh, groom each other when they're in colonially roosting. And so they can, with treating a sub portion of the bats in a uh, cave or hibernaculum, we may be able to treat very large groups. Oh, that would be awesome. But I have to quickly ask, what is a hibernaculum? A hibernaculum is the location where the bats hibernate. So it's often caves or mines, somewhere where the temperature is cool and the air is humid and the um, it's stable throughout the winter. Nice. It definitely sounds quite comfy. Do you have your hibernaculum ready for the winter yet? So I like that. That sounds like an amazing outlook, really, to make it possible to vaccinate the bats in the future for white nose syndrome, hopefully soon. There are some other researchers also looking into using uh, bacteria that have antifungal properties and sort of changing the microbiome of the bats to benefit um, sort of have an antifungal. Um, and then there's there's also some research looking into see if there's our chemical treatments. Um, of course, the chemical treatments could affect, you know, the other microflora of the cave environment as well. Yeah, so I guess it's a bit tricky then, isn't it, um, to make sure that it doesn't affect any other balances in the ecosystem. Right. And And the truth is we might need multiple tools to deal with this really big problem. So having multiple tools in our toolkit is going to be important. You don't only work on uh, white nose syndrome, but you've also done some work on um, SARS-CoV-2. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Like what does your work entail there? Sure. Well, um, we think that the SARS-CoV-2, um, the best evidence points that it may have evolved in a bat or um, a bat species in Asia. Um, and so one question we had at the National Wildlife Health Center was if it could infect um, bats in North America. And so um, with Dr. Jeff Hall at the National Wildlife Health Center and other collaborators, we've been investigating um, what some of the common North American species, um, what happens when we infect them with SARS-CoV-2. Um, we're targeting the species that have the most contact with humans on the premise that they might get it from humans and also if they could shed it that they might share it back with humans and so so far we've looked at um, big brown bats and uh, mexican free-tailed bats and um, we saw actually really different results in those two species um, big brown bats don't seem to have a productive infection they don't get sick and they don't shed virus um, on the other hand um, mexican free-tailed bats can become infected they can they don't show any clinical disease that we could um, find, but they can shed the virus. So they could share it with each other or other species that they might have contact with. And so we're going to be 
continuing to investigate more into that, um, in, into how SARS-CoV-2 infects um, Mexican free-tailed bats and how they might transmit it to each other. So before we finish up, I have one last question for you to end on a, a positive note and a maybe slightly entertaining one. Do you have any fieldwork highlights that you want to share with us? Because I imagine working with bats in the field is probably not the easiest thing, is it? Um, it's definitely not. Um, <laughs> uh, most I mentioned the hibernaculum, and so mostly we capture bats from locations like caves and mines. Um, I, I would say the most surprising day for me in the field was um, when we arrived to an abandoned lead mine, and the field biologists that had been monitoring this location um, didn't didn't mention that it was a, a lead mine, and also they didn't mention that we would have to army crawl on our bellies to get into the cave entrance. Um, so I didn't know until that day that I feel a little bit uncomfortable about very tight spaces. Um, I, I had, of course, already learned that um, I don't love dark caves, but I can get over it. Um, but but um, army crawling into a black cavern was uh, a little nerve wracking. <laughs> I, I made it. I made it in and I made it out. <laughs> I can really imagine that. That that's, that sounds very tough. But I assume everyone in the team was vaccinated for rabies, right? So at least. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I was much more concerned about getting lost in the cave than about the about rabies. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Thanks so much for being my guest on the show, Liz. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Wildlife Health Talks. We will be back with a new story in two weeks. Bye for now.